Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is Jay Wilkinson. Jay is the CEO of Firespring, a Nebraska-based certified B Corp that was featured as one of Inc. Magazine's top 50 places to work in America. Jay is passionate about crafting Firespring's culture and spends most of his time helping businesses find their why and deepen their impact. Welcome, Jay. It's such a pleasure to be joining you today. It's great to have you on the show. You've got a wonderful story. I want to jump right in, but I also want to set context for folks that may not be familiar with Firespring. Tell me just quickly about the company, what you guys do. Well, Firespring is, we refer to ourselves as an inside-out marketing agency. So we help uh, primarily uh, brands, uh, businesses, and nonprofits uh, all over the world with their marketing, uh, branding from the outside in, the the typical things any agency would work on. But we also learned uh, when we really started focusing on that aspect of our business that uh, a lot of the companies we work with that desire to be companies of purpose or to, to, uh, uh, to make their mark in the world um, understand that's what they want, but they don't know exactly how to get there. So uh, we started working internally with leadership teams, helping them um, understand how to build the dynamic, engaging work cultures and um, and building businesses that are truly aligned around uh, around the eight core questions that every business needs to be able to answer from their core values uh, to their focus and their marketing and all the things that are really important about running a company. So we work inside out with leadership teams and outside in with marketing. We have clients in all 50 states, um, uh, 14 countries around the world, more than 10,000 uh, that, that we work with, with the various uh, programs and services that we do. And uh, can you share in terms of size, maybe total employees? I don't know if you share revenues, things like that. Yeah, we have around 200 employees and uh, we uh, we aspire to to grow to uh, in the next uh, five years to become a hundred million dollar uh, agency that is uh, uh, entirely employee owned through an ESOP um, that is positioned to be durable and and last for a hundred years or more. So we aspire to be an evergreen company that uh, spans generations as uh, as an employee owned enterprise. Incredible. Now, didn't you start really as a printing company? I mean, it seems like a long stretch from that to uh, <laughs> working as a agency, which was really focused on the outside, right? The brand and the, the messaging yeah. to now bringing it back inside to realizing that, that it, for companies to create that brand, they have to start that work inside. How did you, and over what period of time, make these transitions? Yeah, we when uh, w- when I was in college, I uh, was a was already um, I'd already discovered as an entrepreneur that I was otherwise unemployable and uh, um, started all kinds of things. I started a a, a magazine that uh, ended up growing pretty rapidly and did really well. 
And uh, uh, in in the process of publishing that magazine, I kind of fell in love with the printing industry. And this was in the early 90s when the printing and publishing industry as a whole was the fourth largest industry in the world. Um, there was a lot going on around that space. And I, I believed at the time that any business and every business needed to have a printing uh, company as a staple because we all needed the, the brochures, the letterhead, the business cards, all the things that we needed. So I started the business, yes, originally as a printing company. Uh, but then Al Gore invented the internet. Thank you, Al. And uh, in the mid 90s, we pivoted into the internet. And so today we're one of the longest um, uh, tenured companies that have been continuously designing and developing websites since late 1995, early 1996, goes way back to the very beginning uh, when the internet was uh, kind of a, a new and shiny thing. Uh, so we, we started uh, developing websites, which took us quickly down a path of working on branding and marketing. So our, our entry and our foray into this, into this space really happened pretty quickly um, after the launch of our of our printing business way back in the early 90s. Hmm. Now, I recall hearing a story about uh, in in the somewhat early days of your business, and I don't know how you guys were funded, but I know you had a board and kind of 9-11 happened, and you got fired as the CEO of your own company. Tell us what happened. Oh, my goodness, yes. Thank you for bringing the dark days back to the present. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's it, it, without question, it's the single biggest uh, learning experience and uh, and just formational experience um, you know, just as a human that I've ever gone through from a um, at least from a business perspective. Uh, the short version of the story uh, is that uh, we had uh, raised money to grow our business. We were expanding rapidly by um, offering turnkey website products, which today would be called software as a service. Um, uh, but back in those days, there was a little more hands-on involved. It wasn't push a button and launch uh, essentially a product, but we were um, in the early days developing essentially turnkey websites for several different verticals. And, and then 9-11 happened. And uh, we had raised money just a year before that and uh, expanded, hired a lot of people. And the bottom of the, of the market just fell out where we were previously selling, you know, every other person that we would get a demo with would buy a product. Now, all of a sudden, no one would buy products and services from us. We couldn't even get appointments with people. Um, and I, I reacted too slowly. We had uh, a lot of people on our team that we had brought on to scale. We knew that we were going to be burning cash because it was part of our plan. Um, but we were burning a lot faster and a lot more than what we had planned after, uh, after the economy declined and, and people stopped spending money on marketing. And I got into uh, a tug of war with my, with my board of directors. And I made a lot of mistakes in my life. And one of the earliest was when I weighted my board um, with the investors that I had brought in that were venture capitalists. I, I wanted their expertise and their professionalism. I thought these uh, people knew a lot more than I did, which they did. And I wanted their expertise and their, and, and their help. And so I uh, very uh, uh, foolishly uh, at the time uh, weighted my board uh, have, heavily towards our venture capitalists of the seven member board four of them were uh, from the from the venture capital firms that we had uh, that we had raised money through and 
when uh, the proverbial uh, you know crap hit the fan, uh, they were uh, demanding essentially that I lay off more than half of our entire team. And I didn't feel that that's what we needed to do. I thought we could uh, make make some other decisions. And, and I was working through a plan. And in the middle of all that, they essentially fired me on a four to three vote as the CEO of my own company. I still owned the majority of the company. I still had um, the majority interest. So uh, uh, I, I, they, they couldn't oust me completely. You know, I was still the owner. Uh, but it took me six months to recover um, and, uh, most sane people would have just given up, uh, you know, that it, it was, uh, we, we were deeply in debt and, uh, had very little hope of, of coming out of it. And, uh, because of my refusal to lay off more than half of our team, uh, that ended up being the thing that, that saved us. Our, our team member, our employees rallied together. You know, I became incredibly transparent. I learned about um, vulnerability. And I learned about empathy. I learned about so many different things during those days. And uh, our, our team came together and came up with a plan. Uh, it wasn't my recommendation. It was theirs together that they would take 50% pay cut. So every, every single employee at the company at the time took a 50% pay cut. Some of them deferred additional wages where they um, just deferred 100% of their comp because their spouse you know, made, made enough money or they had saved up enough to pay their rent or whatever. But you know, we, we, uh, we took an all-hands-on-deck, we're all-in-this-together attitude. And uh, within a couple of months, I was able to go out and find investors um, uh, to, to buy out the venture capitalists on, on a new plan that I put together and our team rallied within two years. We were highly profitable. Um, within five years, we had paid off the debt and were on track for really awesome things. And, um, we were forged in, in, in what I refer to now as the dark days, um, as a, as a team and as a group of people who worked together, it, it, uh, it was an incredible lesson and very difficult and, and challenging, but it, it's what made our company what it is today. Mm. What an incredible story and resilience, not only of you, but the team. And uh, of course, uh, I, I recall a number of times in my own career, uh, similar situations where uh, it's incredible how people step up. And the most important thing about what you said is that the ideas and the plan came from them, not from you. And uh, yeah. uh, and that's got to be one of the most gratifying things for you. Um, looking back on all of this, are, are today? Uh, do you still have outside investors? Uh, you know, what? How did you structure the company after that? Well, our company is mostly employee owned today. We have a few outside investors that uh, that came to the table in those early days and 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 helped us buy out the venture capitalists. But all of those uh, shares are being converted to an ESOP within the next five years as we evolve to become 100% employee owned um, on, on a plan that we have in place over the next five years. Fantastic. So. Now that you're helping all these other companies um, build purpose-driven brands and purpose-driven leadership teams and you're going inside, that had to start with your own company and creating that dynamic that all came out of these tougher times. Talk a little bit about the culture you've built at Firespring, uh, specifically what you've done around really uh, this notion of love 
uh, as the definition and the representation of your culture. Yeah, I am one of those uh, one of those people that is a huge believer in uh, in, in that love has a place in business, and uh, um, it's something that we uh, we hold really dear here at Firespring. If you go around our building. Um, you see manifestations of, uh, of expressions of, of appreciation, um, kindness, empathy, gratitude, and, and love for each other um, that, that I feel is, is really important. Um, it's, uh, it's an aspect of, um, uh, of behavior and connectedness that, uh, that makes people feel like they're part of something that's bigger than themselves. And uh, um, the expression of appreciation and love in, in that sentiment is, is everything. And so we, we work diligently with our managers in particular on learning how to connect with their team. So like, um, in, in modern times, uh, with, uh, with things happening around, uh, you know, the coronavirus and things like that, where it changes the way businesses operate and work, where we had to switch to an entirely, uh, remote uh, workforce with our with with our service level um, employees, um, the ability for us to stay connected during that time um, is everything to us, and uh, and we do that um, through manifestations of how uh, we express appreciation and love for one another. So one of the things that we do at Fire Springs, we have we've been doing this for. Um, for I think close to 15 years now, we have a daily stand-up meeting. We call it our fire starter. For us, it happens every day at 11:11 a.m. That's the time of day that we realized years ago that was going to optimize attendance, get everybody in the building there. And uh, we have an 11-minute meeting. It never lasts longer than that. And uh, we recognize each other for living our values for. Um, for uh, the, the things that we do for one another. And we call each other out. Um, in the time of the coronavirus, we actually switched that to an entirely online meeting, which has taken on a really interesting flavor for us uh, uh, to get our, our entire distributed workforce connected online, uh, giving shout outs to one another, expressing love and appreciation um, and, and how we are working together to find a better way with all, the, all aspects of the way we do things. So um, the, the, the primary way that we exercise that, um, the, the, the concept of love in the workplace and for each other is through this daily meeting that we have where we are um, essentially coming together and celebrating uh, the way that we live our values together and recognizing each other for our accomplishments. You mentioned that a lot of the work that you do is around helping your managers with the tools that they need to practically take care of their teams, express love, et cetera. In my career, whether it was my own company that grew to maybe about 400 people or when I worked uh, for a while in the company that bought mine, uh, which is a public company with thousands of employees, I found that the biggest challenge was taking those managers who we had promoted because they were great workers, but forget mm -hmm. to, but forgot to, we forgot to teach them what it meant not only to manage, but truly to lead. And so how, do, how did you realize that that was the key to all of this? And 
and get them to realize that their job was not just to hit the target or hit the production level, but their job was actually to uh, motivate and spend time with their team. Yeah, Paul, you've hit it on the head. There, there are so many. I think that one of the biggest dysfunctions in companies, businesses all over the world are companies that don't understand how critically important it is to make sure that the people that are leading and managing and holding people accountable in their business um, are, are trained to do, to do that. You know, to your point, the, the number one and two reasons that people are promoted into a position of manager is A, they've been around the longest, the, you know, <laughs> a tenure thing, or B, they were really good at their job. They were a good salesperson or engineer or whatever. And those are the worst two possible reasons <laughs> to promote someone into a position of leadership or management. The only good reason is that that person is really skilled and naturally wired to lead and manage and hold people accountable. And um, just in a uh, in, in a note of vulnerability here, I, I learned early on in my career, thank goodness, that I was not good at managing and holding people accountable. It wasn't a strength of mine. I cared too much in my early days about um, about wanting people to like me and wanting to be friends with people. And I, I had a hard time um, with the accountability part. And the day that I realized that that was not my skill um, and put myself out of a position where I had lots of people reporting to me is when our, when our company started to dynamically change. Um, so coming to that realization as a leader in any business that we have to make sure that the people that are leading and managing and holding people accountable in our businesses, that those people uh, model what it means to live the values of the company. They, um, they, they encourage everybody in their team to constantly be focused on finding a better way. They take things off of their plates for them and they, um, they embrace the different personalities and, uh, and, and, you know, they don't believe in this, in that flawed belief that, uh, we have to treat everyone the same. Uh, we don't. We should treat every person the way that that person needs to be treated in order to maximize their output and the satisfaction of the work that they do. We need to be good at delegating. We need to um, uh, make sure that we don't glorify people for working excess um, hours. Um, it, it's not, it's not something to glorify that, you know, that someone works every, every night and every, every weekend, um, glorify the output of their work, but not, not the, uh, uh, you know, the fact that they're excessively, um, burning themselves out. We, we need to have managers that model all of this stuff and model vulnerability, um, and hold people accountable. Number one, that, uh, because that's what people need and want in a work environment. They want to know what's expected of them. And they want to know what they're, you know, how they're being um, uh, evaluated and, and how they're contributing. They want to feel appreciated. They want to feel loved. And um, those things, if a manager can do those things, can transform the way a company operates and the output that that company gets from their team. Mm. You know, I read that you pay special attention to introverts in your company. Mm -hmm. And that's near and dear to my heart right away because I identify as an introvert. Uh, but uh, how do you show love to the introverts in your company? Well, n number one, um, we really respect their, um, their space and, and how they, how they want to interact and, um, and connect with others. Uh, there are people 
that um, are naturally wired to want to be recognized in public, for example. Um, when we do our daily fire starter meeting, we call people out. Um, there are people that, that prefer to be recognized in, in writing or in person. Um, so we have um, uh, these uh, uh, notepads placed all over the business where, you, where people can just grab a note and recognize a team member for, um, for having their back, for uh, giving a shit or for bringing it, which are our three, our three core values mm-hmm. um, in some in, important way. And they, they can write it and share it with people. But the biggest thing for us is uh, that we learned over the years is how to, how to find those people in the interview process. Because introverts often get lost in the interview process because they don't stand out necessarily. They don't feel not all the time, but but many times they don't feel confident and comfortable extolling you know their their um, abilities and their work ethic. Ethic. They they have a harder time connecting with an interviewer um, in a, in a session. So we've developed tactics over the years to really find those folks and, and, uh, and ask questions that, that pull things out of them. We don't put them into uncomfortable, large group interviews. Um, if, if we, if we feel like it's not a good match for their, um, natural wiring, um, which a lot of companies do, um, uh, and we don't force them into social situations that make them uncomfortable. We respect, um, their, their desire to operate a little bit differently than the extroverted people. A lot of times when people come to fire spring and they feel the energy, we have a slide that goes from the second floor to the first floor. We have like a lot of companies, uh, you know, games around the building and different things. And, and people get a sense that, you know, there's, there's energy when they come here. Um, but then when they, when they start interacting with our people, they realize that, not everybody is the loudmouth extrovert that's you know patting them on the back and telling them it's great to have them in the building. Um, the energy comes from a different place. It comes from a place where people feel comfortable, confident. They feel included. They feel heard. Um, they feel important. And uh, that that's the thing that we really focus on a lot. That's great. It's uh, so many things that uh, none of which cost money. Right. These are just things that you do, very small things to identify great people, show people that uh, you care about them, uh, personalize recognition in ways that are special to the individual. Uh, I want to take you back, Jay, a little bit because, um, of course, you learned a lot of lessons while you've been in business, but you also had influences in your childhood, I'm sure, had early lessons in jobs or school. Um, tell me about, about your folks. I'm trying to figure out where this leadership influence came from. Well, f- first of all, my, my father and my grandfathers um, uh, on both sides of my business are all entrepreneurs. So I come from um, a, a line of, of entrepreneurs. My family settled in the, in the central Sand Hills region, the uh, plains of Nebraska, um, in the 1860s, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. My great-grandfather um, was uh, personal friends with Buffalo Bill and, uh, <laughs> um, and you know, hung out in, my, in, in, in the town. I graduated from high school in is, is North Platte, Nebraska, where Buffalo Bill started his Wild West Ranch back in the day. Um, but the, I would say the biggest influence on me growing up in terms of my entrepreneurship was my, was my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother lived to be 103 years old. Uh, she uh, was born in 1901, 
uh, you know, so she, she was basically, um, uh, she, she lived the, uh, you know, the entire century and was just an amazing, remarkable woman. When she was around 21, 20, 22 years old, uh, her father, uh, my great grandfather passed away and she had to take over the family business. And it, it was a moving and storage company. So, you know, the, the, uh, back in those days, in the early days, they had horses and, and dray wagons that they moved things from one house to another and building to building. Eventually, the, you know, the, the trucks came about and these truck drivers would come in and they were not able to back the trucks up to the loading docks. Uh, because they didn't have the skill developed yet. So my grandmother, you know, in her early 20s, would run out and back these trucks up to the loading docks. And she ran this moving and storage company for her entire life. And I remember as a young kid, um, when at that time, you know, she was in her 40s, 50s. Um, I would go in and hang out in the office in, this, in her moving and storage company as these men would come in. And I watched my grandmother interact with these men with, uh, with authority and discipline. And, um, and, and then she would treat the next person completely differently. And be, you know, she, would, she would be malleable and she knew how to interact with people. And I would be sitting there you know, playing with my marbles or my baseball cards or whatever as a little kid. Uh, sitting in her office in the corner uh, while she would interact with all these people. And I, it was like having a front row seat to, um, to, to just learning how to connect with people and how to guide people and how to lead people. Uh, so without question, uh, my grandmother was uh, the biggest, if, if not the biggest influence, one of the biggest influences in, in my life and career in, in business for certain. And to, uh, at, to have that also be a woman who you learned those lessons from leading a business in those days. Uh, incredible. Yes. incredible. Uh, what about, uh, I, you said, you, you know, you started a bunch of companies and uh, that didn't make it early on before you kind of hit on, hit on this one. What kind of lessons did you learn there? Oh gosh, I learned so many things about what not to do, um, and and uh, I think the biggest lessons that I focused on early on, or that I the, the lessons that I took out of a lot of my early attempts in business, was the importance of of people number one and putting people first. Um, that that it's it's not possible to build in a, a meaningful company without uh, without starting with people and putting people first. Um, that was number one, but, but also I, I learned, um, the importance of, of scalability, you know, it, for, for me, and it, I, I don't mean this to be, um, uh, uh, like playing anything else down or an insult to, to, to anyone. But for me, what I cared about was the, the ability to scale, um, to the point where I felt like I can do something meaningful. I believe that there's a difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur. Um, you know, there's a, a business, and, and again, I don't mean to say that in that one's better than another, but there's a difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur um, is 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 taking usually big big risks, um, swinging, um, and and more likely to uh, to have big failures. Um, 
And uh, b- business owners uh, are happier, uh, more sane, more uh, socially adjusted people. Um, and I envy the heck out of business owners um, because of their ability to come in and, and run a company or run a business um, that is doing really important, meaningful things for their neighborhoods, for their communities, whether it's a restaurant, it's a, uh, it's a bar, it's a, um, it's, it's a small business that serves people within the community. It's an incredibly important and, and uh, meaningful uh, service to offer. But an entrepreneur typically is wired in such a way that um, they, we need scale. We need to, we need to be able to not, not develop one. We need to replicate it and develop 10, 20, 30, a hundred and, and grow, um, exponentially. And that's something that in my early career, I realized and started to think about business, um, from the standpoint of how can I scale something to become, uh, bigger because I wanted to do something that created impact. When I was in, in high school, I got elected to student council and I attended this leadership workshop, which sounded horrible to my 15-year-old lizard brain that I had to go to a leadership camp. It was like the worst thing that I could possibly imagine myself doing for five days over, over the, in the summer. But I went to this, this thing and it changed my life. Um, there was a sign that hung on the wall in, uh, in, in the room where me and the 12 other students that I was connected with, um, in our little, in our little group, it said, I expect to pass through this world, but once any good, therefore that I can do or any kindness I can show, let me do it now. Let me not defer or neglect it for I shall not pass this way again. And I remember internalizing that as a 15 year old kid thinking that someday I'm going to start a business where that's the ethos, where that's like the foundation of what we're doing. Um, and, uh, I, I tried many times over the course of different business opportunities and finally was able to instill that into the ethos of, of this company as, as, as we grew in the nineties and, 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 and all the way to today. But, uh, it's so critically important that we listen to those lessons early in life and, 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 and we, we, we focus on the things that we believe, um, will that, that we can impact, that we can change, that that we can um, control, rather than businesses that are um, or enterprises or whatever that, uh, that that run us. You know the the old axiom um, of of making sure that um, we're running our business, our business isn't running us. It's so critically important that we we find that um, and and then focus on building it and, and building it to scale if that's what's important to you. I love how uh, that that lesson from your high school leadership class, I mean, just those two words, impact and kindness, those two things that, mm-hmm. and it may have taken you a while to find it, but you were always searching and searching and now you've developed this uh, platform uh, through FireSpring and through uh, teaching and mentoring and speaking and and clearly having impact with the company today, as you go out and you visit other companies and you go inside, what are you seeing are their biggest challenges to creating this sense of purpose that can then translate into building a positive outside brand? Well, I think the biggest disconnect that we see frequently is just alignment issues where um, if you go to, if there are five members of a leadership team, for example, and you separately sit down with each five of them and interview them on um, mission, purpose, passion, you know, what, anything related to the business, uh, what we see 
the vast majority of the times we're getting five different disparate answers. Um, the, the, the most important thing that we see in those, in those companies is just, is alignment. The ones that are, the ones that are getting it, the ones that, um, uh, where all of the people in that organization feel, um, uh, empowered and they feel again, heard and seen, and they love being part of this organization. Um, if, and then you go talk to those leadership teams, you see, they're all talking the same talk. They're walking the same walk. They're aligned in their words and their actions. Um, and, and when you're aligned in your words and your actions, when there's congruency there, that's where the magic happens. And most of these companies just simply do not have that. They talk about it, the CEO or the COO or somebody in the organization um, has uh, a vision or is very um, excited about something, but the others are not are not on the same page somewhere. That's the biggest issue, without question. Um, and that that goes back to um, really taking the time to work together um, as a leadership team, um, developing. Uh, trust among one another and, and, and establishing a very clear vision, you know, that 10 year target that Jim Collins talked about the BHAG, the big hairy audacious goal, making sure that we're clear on that. And then what's our three year uh, vision, our three year picture as uh, Gino Wickman writes about in traction, uh, you know, the three year picture, the one year plan, and then the quarterly rocks and the traction that we're getting in the business, all of those, um, those things create alignment around, um, the North star of, of the organization and the business. And that's the thing that's, that's always missing in companies that aren't, aren't performing. One of the th questions I get quite a lot from people is to what extent can we really improve our culture, live our purpose, define our purpose. If we have a leader that doesn't seem to get it. And uh, it's hard for me to imagine a organization truly succeeding in this journey without a leader that genuinely believes and um, is vulnerable at the same time. What is your sense of what you see out there when you're uh, trying to answer that question for people that are not necessarily at the top, but are really seeking that kind of change within their organization? Yeah, it's a, that's a really a really great insight, uh, and and it's something Paul that we see all the time where there are are pockets or groups of people within organizations and companies that desire and that strive to be something that's bigger than themselves, but they're but they're not um, able to do so because the leader or the person in charge at that organization or business simply um, doesn't get it. Or, or they think they get it, but uh, they get it wrong. Um, or they simply think things are good enough, or that it, you know that our focus as a company is uh, shareholder uh, return. You know that's what we're focused on. We we have to we have to put money in the pockets of the shareholders. That's our focus as a company. And you know, gosh, what employee, what team member in any company ever anywhere got out of bed excitedly in the morning, jumping up and down because they get to go to work today and maximize shareholder value. Mm -hmm. uh, it never has happened and it, and it won't ever happen. But, but leaders of companies simply don't get it um, so often. And, and I do believe, though, that there are ways that inside of companies, inside of uh, large organizations, especially pockets or teams of, of people can develop really productive, effective, efficient 
work cultures inside an organization based on the merits of, of a team leader, you know, a, a, mid, a mid manager that really believes in culture and engagement and in doing and saying, walking the talk. I, I think you can build pockets of, of culture and I, I've seen it happen in organizations where that has happened and then it's seeped over to another team and seeped over to another team where it's, where it's essentially worked its way up from the, from the middle up instead of from the top down. Um, I've seen that happen. It's much more rare, but it certainly is possible. So I, I think that any, anyone in any company who desires and wishes that their company, their boss, their leader um, had the capability of leading with their heart first um, you can model that and you can affect that. You can change it. It's not easy. It's much harder, no question, but it can be done. Wow. Uh, I wish I was as optimistic as you are. And I, and I love that approach because I don't doubt that it's true, but I, when I hear that and I talk to people who are going through that, I'm, I'm generally more likely to say, you know, give it a good give a good try, but if it doesn't work, you got to move, you got to go, you got to leave because I think life is too short and we're all searching for purpose and fulfillment. And, uh, and, you know, and like you said, um, it's not going to work every time. Um, but if you can teach people how to build those pockets and, uh, and we can spread that from the, um, the middle to the top, uh, or out at least, uh, what a tremendous accomplishment uh, for companies. So I think, you know, as you can share more tools for people in those positions, um, I think you'd have a huge audience for that. You know, as you're as you're thinking about the company today, you're building toward, you know, employee ownership and, and enduring um, evergreen company. Uh, I got to believe you're still learning lessons. Um, and so t- talk about even in the more recent past, uh, a, a really humbling decision that you've had to make as a leader? Oh, gosh, there are so many, and it happens all the time. Um, I think the thing that I'm probably grappling with the most um, right now um, is, is, is this disconnect and, 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 what, and the, the difference between intent and impact. Um, my grandmother, who I talked about earlier, I remember it, when I was uh, maybe in the fifth or sixth grade, I had already started to develop um, an ability uh, that I guess I would best refer to as persuasion. I could persuade my friends, my classmates to do things uh, or to or, or to try something or whatever. Um, and and uh, there was a uh, uh, I can't remember again, fifth, sixth grade, somewhere around in there. Um, this girl got mad at me, um, and told me to stop trying to manipulate her into, and it was some like recess game or something. And I remember looking up those words and trying to figure out what, what that meant manipulation. And my grandmother, when I told her about this story and sitting in the corner of her office, talking to her and she's, she's kind of helping me work through this, uh, this frustration. She, she explained to me that the difference between, uh, the difference between manipulation and motivation is intent, you know, and mm-hmm. so I've always 
carried that with me that 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 the the difference between manipulation and motivation is intent if your intent is good and right then it's okay if you can persuade people to do things or try things or whatever and so i've carried that with me but then in the last decade of my life or so i've really struggled um having that belief in my head i've struggled with with lots of things where i have intended um, certain things. I know what's in my heart. I know what's in my spirit and what, what my intentions are. But there are so many times where I've made decisions where the impact of my words or my actions have created, I don't know, anger, frustration, um, have hurt people, uh, inc- you know, including my wife, my kids, um, team members, where unintentionally I've said or done something. And, and, then, I, and then my response is, well, I don't know why you're so upset. That wasn't my intent, you know. So I just go right to this defensive posture, <laughs> and and I'm trying to deal with my intent instead of the impact that my decisions or action had. But what I've been learning slowly um, is to honor the impact first. Um, so if I know that my words or actions have hurt someone or um, or affected someone in a certain way, I'm, I'm w- really more cognizant now of trying to honor that impact and trying to, trying to understand how it hurt them and, and why it hurt them and, 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 and dealing with that, tending to that wound first. And then maybe if necessary, later coming back and saying, oh, but by the way, you know, but my intention wasn't, wasn't that um, maybe deal with the the intention as a separate issue, separate topic. But I've learned that I don't even really need to do that if all I do is honor and honor the the impact and tend to the wound itself. And I, it sounds I, I don't know that I'm explaining it well, but it's something that I've been really working on for the last several years, and it's something that um, that that I'm really working to improve on. Um, and it's and it's been been humbling for me. Uh, this entire process of just trying to work through a a different way of of thinking. Well, I I totally get what you're talking about because I can relate. We can all relate to that. And um, I remember talking to Ramon Shada, uh, who started the Huntu Institute, and this all comes down to tools that we can use in order to get better at the way we communicate with people. And, And so what you're simply saying is that uh, we ne- we can't necessarily change the the reaction or the initial communication that sometimes just comes out and and but before being defensive about uh, that just understand and realize the impact that whatever we said had on someone else and it's going to stop there and and uh, slow down and be patient and and that you'll end up with a better outcome from that and I think that's the simple tool what Ramon said was that one of the tools he uses is literally um, a discipline that every interaction he has during the course of a day, he finds a time when that interaction is over, whether it's a conversation, a phone call, a meeting, etc., to stop, look back and say, how did I do? How, hmm. what was the impression that I made? What could I have done differently? And it's just a mental exercise that he goes through. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. If we could all stop and just ask ourselves that, uh, we could learn a lot. And again, these are disciplines that I think we build, yeah. we build over time. And I think yours is a, a great one that I, you know, I'm going to take from this for sure. Um, well, our, our time is running short, Jay. There's so much we could be talking about. I just want to uh, have you share uh, some advice for 
younger people that are maybe starting out in their careers uh, that uh, from all of the lessons that you have learned and continue to learn as they move to whether it is entrepreneurship, business ownership, whatever they decide, uh, what kind of key advice would you provide to them? Yeah, um, I, I believe that the that the secret to a productive life and 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 to be an incredible contributor to any team, um, it just in, in a family and a relationship, everything the the key and, and you know to a, a great life is really simple. It's just about doing what you say you're going to do. It's about under promising and over delivering. If, if if everyone could just do this one thing consistently where um, they say they'll do something and they actually do it. Um, so under promise over deliver, if that's what that, if that's what you need to do to make that happen. If every person did that, we would have just, wow, amazing work teams. They would be successful. They would be, um, they would be more financially um, successful in, in all aspects. I, I think that's what it's all about um, is just making sure that uh, we all live our lives doing what we say we're going to do. So words come easy. Actions are, um, are far more important than telling. Um, if we, if we, if we under promise and over deliver on everything um, we can accomplish anything. I love that. Such a great, simple uh, thing that, again, took you being vulnerable early on to realize that wasn't a, a sweet spot of yours. And now mm -hmm. it's the core of who you are and the impact that you've made. I, I tell the story, I'm sure, I know you do a lot of speaking and uh, I've spoken to a lot of schools and I always marvel at how the number of students, whether they're undergrads or even graduate students that'll come out and come up to me after the talk and and say, wow, that was inspiring. I really learned a lot. I'd love to pick your brain um, and, and, and learn from you some more. And so I'll hand out my cards. Of course, call me. Be happy to do it. You know, right? So out of those 20 people, how many actually follow up? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, maybe one. But that one person, then I meet them for lunch or I have a phone call or something like that. And I realize that it's just part that that they're wired differently than many other people. They they're taking advantage of an opportunity, and and these are these are the world superstars going forward, and so it's just so easy. The lesson there being that you know you can just say, yeah, I want to follow up with you here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that, and then you just don't, and and, mm -hmm. and you realize not just the impact, but what you've missed. You've missed the opportunity to take advantage of something that's available to you. And so, um, so many other examples of that. I just love that simple advice for people, um, which is uh, wonderful. Uh, Jay, there's just no question that you've made an impact not only in the lives of the uh, employees, uh, that you're creating a company that's going to endure over time. Uh, I think your impact is far greater um, by the voice you're spreading to other companies uh, and and people and how they live their lives. Uh, I want to end with these five quick hit questions, uh, kind of the association game. Just say that whatever comes to your mind. Um, can you name a leader that you look up to? Uh, yes, Satya Nadella's whole thing about being a learn it all, not a know it all, speaks volumes to me. Mm, great. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? 
Um, I, I, I would say the book that has most influenced me and my leadership style over the years is a classic. It's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders by Stephen Covey. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite all-time movie? Oh, my goodness. That's like asking a favorite child for me. Um, <laughs> I, I love movies. My wife and I uh, go to movie festivals all the time. Um, uh, probably Schindler's List because of how it, um, it, it kind of in, reinstilled in me faith in humanity at a time that I needed it. Oh, gosh. What an incredible one. Uh, your favorite TV series to binge watch? Oh, I'm excited about the new season of Ozark. Right now, I love uh, I love Ozark. Is the new season coming out soon? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's just a couple of months away from uh, from from being ready. Yeah, that's that's a great one. I'm looking forward to it. All right, and lastly, what is something about you that many people don't know? Oh my, um, I would say most people don't know that. Uh, um, my wife and I have a, have a a quench and a thirst for adventure, and one of our favorite things is going to Burning Man every year. We uh, we are serial burners. We go every year and um, celebrate humanity and 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 again restore and center recenter ourselves uh, every year in the Nevada desert, along with seventy thousand other people from around the world. Man, um, good for you. I, you know, you look on the news and it just looks like craziness over there. <laughs> you know, I'm not big for <laughs> crowds, so you probably won't see me there. But you know, you guys are obviously committed to you know growth and development for yourselves and everybody around you, and um, it's just amazing. I, I want to um, take a minute just to go back and share some of the things I learned from you today, uh, based on the stories that that you told, uh, and you know, and it goes back to, again, the big lesson you learned when you were fired as the CEO of your own company. Um, and to me, the thing there was um, not so much how how you were structured, uh, how you listened to some of those around you and, and what their intentions were um, at the time, but the fact that you listened to your own team uh, at that time, that you refused to lay people off, even though uh, that's what the board wanted. Um, you worked with your people. You gave them the opportunity to come up with the plan. You executed on that plan. And then you slowly came out of it and you were able to buy out those initial investors. And here you are today transitioning the company to uh, your own employees so it can endure over time. So much, so much to be proud of. The very practical things that you do in your company on a daily basis to uh, exhibit love from the the you know the fire starter daily stand up meeting at eleven eleven for eleven minutes uh, and that's all it takes is that small time uh, every day those small uh, words those testimonials that people share with each other uh, is is really incredible um, uh, I love how you talked about promoting people and that the that the worst reasons to promote people are the way and the reasons we promote people today because of tenure, because of good work, not because of the natural inclination to lead. And if we can find that and test for and uncover that natural inclination, those are the people we want to invest in to become um, great managers. Uh, you express great vulnerability uh, around um, the fact that that uh, you just wanted to be liked and you wanted to be a nice person, but you didn't really know what it meant to to show accountability and and uh, 
insist on accountability, um, which is now a huge part of the message that you deliver. Um, obviously, the early lessons that you had in your life, the big one from your grandmother, who, because her father dies at the age of 21, she's now the owner of this moving and storage company. Um, but but it wasn't so much what she accomplished. What you talked about was that what you noticed about her was how she interacted with people on a daily basis and how that she talked to one person very different than the way she talked to someone else. So she showed compassion, understanding, um, and the ability to, to realize that not everybody needs to be treated the same way. And so people should realize that all these lessons for how we are today come back from long ago and how we were treated and how, and the lessons we learned. Um, and that's just, uh, such a great one from, uh, your grandmother, uh, that, that, this distinction between business owner versus entrepreneur, you made me feel good there for just a moment because I never really looked at myself or even today as an entrepreneur. I felt like I had one core business that was really my life and my baby, and that was my one gig, right? And and um, everything else has been a bonus as a result of that, but um, uh, there is a distinction there, and I think that's, that's really important. Uh, what you learned that you were able to quote what you learned in that high school leadership program about impact and kindness and nothing is more important today than uh, than those the, those two things. Um, so this is a continuing journey. People should understand that you can build pockets of great culture, even if you feel frustrated with what's going on at the top right now. Um, and it all comes down to how we communicate with one another this intent versus impact, honoring the impact of our actions, honoring the impact of what we say. And when we do that, as I always say to people, that generally people's intentions are good. And if we can step back from that anger at the moment or frustration that we feel, most people's heart is in the right place. And if we can strip away all that other stuff, we can um, generally get to a more positive solution. And, and ultimately, what you said about living a great life, secret to a great life is do what you say you're going to do, under promise, over deliver, and life is going to be good for you and everyone else. Uh, so, so much to, to thank you for, Jay, um, in the lessons that you've shared with us that our listeners will be able to take advantage of. And I really, really thank you for being on the podcast, sharing the story, and continued success to you. Thank you so much, Paul. I have uh, much respect for you and the organization and the work that you've done in your career. Thank you for the honor of spending time with you today. Well, thank you. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to hear future episodes. Until next time.